Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. The word cowardice gets thrown around a lot in today's interview. It's between NPR's Leila Fadl and Liz Cheney, the former Wyoming representative and one of the few Republicans who consistently spoke out against former President Donald Trump and faced some serious consequences for doing so. She's got a new book out titled Oath and Honor, A Memoir and a Warning. And yes, it's a tell-all about her time in Congress, and she names names too. But I think what's most enlightening about this interview is when she talks about what it took for people who purportedly lived and died by the U.S. Constitution to turn their backs on it. And by her estimation, it didn't take much at all. Here's the interview after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. Liz Cheney is out with a tell-all book, an accounting from inside her party on the days before and after the mob attack on the Capitol on January 6th. We need to hold the doors of the Capitol! Oath and Honor, a memoir and a warning, is a scathing rebuke of Cheney's former colleagues who she writes knowingly collaborated and enabled former President Trump's lies about the 2020 election results. She writes of former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who defended Trump's lack of a response to the attack on him and his colleagues on January 6th. What he ended the call was saying, telling me he'll put something out to make sure to stop this. And that's what he did. He put a video out later. A video of Trump, if you recall, that came hours into the attack. In it, he called the attackers good people. Cheney also writes about then-GOP caucus vice chair Mike Johnson, currently the Speaker of the House, backing the lie that the election was stolen after U.S. courts and state Republican election leaders all debunked the claim. President Trump, during his rallies that summer, in, in all of his speeches, he was saying, hey, watch it. The rules are being changed. You know, he was right. When Johnson asked members to sign an amicus brief in support of throwing out election results in some key states, her colleagues, she wrote, felt pressure to sign. Cheney recalls one saying, the things we do for the orange Jesus. On January 6th, when she and her colleagues were attacked for trying to certify the 2020 election results, she thought her party would agree that Trump had threatened this country's democracy. But she was wrong. Months later, she was removed from party leadership because of her stance. Just before her ouster, she gave a defiant speech on the House floor. The election is over. That is the rule of law. That is our constitutional process. She would go on to lose her House seat to a candidate backed by Trump. She felt compelled to write this book, she says, because the foundations of this country are still at risk. I thought it was particularly important because the threat that we we have faced began really in the time period that I cover in the book is ongoing. Mm-hmm. And we're now in a situation where it looks like there's a very good chance that Donald Trump could be the Republican nominee, for example. And um, people really, I think, need to understand and recognize the specifics, the details of what he tried to do in terms of overturning the election and seizing power, and the details and the specifics of the elected officials who helped him. 
and as well as what he would do if he were elected again. And, and we don't have to guess about that because he has been very clear in terms of being at war with the rule of law. But in terms of, of what happened on Capitol Hill, what happened in Congress in the aftermath of the 2020 election, I do think it's very important for people to understand how close we came to a far greater constitutional crisis and how quickly and easily, in a way that is frankly terrifying, um, members of Congress who you know had seemed reasonable and, and responsible before the 2020 election in many cases, how quickly those individuals decided to, to put their own political survival ahead of their duty to the Constitution. Um, and it's a, it's a scary story, but I think it's one that it's, it's really important. I think people deserve to know what happened from the inside. Now, you don't hold back in this book. You name names. Former Speaker Kevin McCarthy comes off as a hypocrite and a coward. You write that he told you Trump knew he'd lost the election, and yet McCarthy repeats these lies and ends up publicly defending the president after the attack on the Capitol. You also write about current speaker Mike Johnson, also an election denier. You say he was easily swayed by flattery from Trump, and you criticize their cowardice, the party's cowardice. Why was it important for you to call out party leadership by name in this moment? Several reasons. One, um, you know, with respect to Mike Johnson, when I wrote the book, he was not the Speaker of the House. And, uh, you know, I, I focused very much on the role that he played because it had been such a destructive role even before he ascended to the Speakership. And I was very involved and engaged uh, in terms of the debates that that we were having about whether or not Republicans should sign on to the Texas amicus brief, for example, or about whether Republicans should be objecting to electoral votes. And Mike played a particularly destructive role. He claimed to be a constitutional lawyer. He claimed to be somebody who was committed to the rule of law. And then time and time again, really did ignore the rulings of the courts and made assertions to our colleagues that were um, not supported by the facts or by the law or by the Constitution. And the story of the role that he played, I felt, was a very important one to tell even you know, before he was in a role of prominence that he is now. And I, I think that history really has to be informed by specific individuals and, and by people understanding that it doesn't take very much tragically and, and frankly, in, in, a, in a way that, that I find heartbreaking. Mm. It didn't take much for people um, to decide that they were going to ignore the most fundamental obligation I believe elected officials have. In the beginning of the book and the beginning of this, you are in leadership in your party, and you feel that a lot of your party understands what's at stake with you. But then slowly that chips away, and at, at a certain point you're almost standing alone. Did you have a watershed moment where you realized, the party isn't with me. After the election, I think there was a period of time where many of us in the party thought, look, there may be legal challenges. Every candidate has the right to do that if, if they have a basis for it. But certainly by the time the Electoral College meets, Donald Trump will concede. It'll become clear that Joe Biden is obviously going to be the president and we will all you know, move forward. And so there were just many moments where I thought that was going to happen and it didn't. Certainly then, you know, when we got to January 6th, and obviously I, I talk at length in the book about the, the lead up to and that day itself, 
But in the aftermath of the 6th, there was near unanimity in the sense that Donald Trump was responsible for what happened. Uh, Republicans proposed legislation that would have censured Donald Trump, and the language in that legislation was virtually identical to the article of impeachment. Republicans proposed a bipartisan commission to investigate what had happened, and and the commission that the Republicans proposed was called the Commission to Investigate the Domestic Terrorist Attack on the U.S. Capitol. So it was clear, it was common sense, we'd lived through it, and that near unanimity, though, began to dissipate very quickly. What was it that stripped away that unanimity? I think it's several things. I think that some of it was certainly just sort of, you know, raw political ambition, that every member of Congress, if you asked them, you know, listen, if if you have to choose between the Constitution and your own political survival, every one of them will say, well, of course, we will choose the Constitution. But as it turned out, when it came down to it, most of them, or too many of them, didn't. Some of it was fear of violence. And, you know, I talk in the book about members who told me, They believed Donald Trump should be impeached, but they couldn't vote to impeach him because they were afraid for their security, for their family's security. People really need to stop and think about what does it mean in America that members of Congress are not voting the way that they believe they should because they fear violence instigated by, you know, then the sitting president of the United States. That's a place we haven't been before. What's the stake here for the country? It couldn't be higher. It really couldn't. And sometimes you hear people say, there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal recently where they suggested that even if Donald Trump were elected, it wouldn't be that bad because, of course, we have these institutions and we have these traditions and we have the separation of powers and, and that people could somehow count on that to restrain him. And one of the main messages of my book is, no, you can't. You mm-hmm. cannot count on those institutions to restrain him. You will not be able to count on you know, a House of Representatives led by Mike Johnson and full of individuals who've already pledged allegiance to Donald Trump, they won't restrain him. Uh, United States Senate, you know, with people like Mike Lee, Rand Paul, uh, they won't restrain him. Tommy Tuberville holding nominations for the most senior positions at the Pentagon. Why is Tommy Tuberville doing that? It's causing great damage to this nation's military readiness. Is he holding those positions open so that Donald Trump can fill them? What's he doing? It's certainly not serving the purposes of the United States of America. The Republican Party is is in your blood, right? I mean, the daughter of Dick Cheney, the former vice president, uh, in the book you describe a lot of towering figures in the Republican Party from the generation before you and your current generation. Uh, You still describe yourself as a conservative with these conservative values, but are you a Republican? I am... I am am certainly uh, not uh, a Trump Republican. Um, I uh, think that the Republican Party as it exists today is is dangerous to the country. I think that we have to work to rebuild um, a conservative party. And I don't know whether that means that, you know, the Republican Party, which um, has gone so far down this path of a cult of personality, whether it can come back Mm. or whether we will need to build a new party, another, you know, party that truly stands for conservative values. And either way, I think that that is a project that is crucially important, but that won't be completed by 2024. And so I, I think very much about what is the most important thing to do now. 
And I think the most important thing to do now without question is to make sure we stop Donald Trump. What American politics looks like after that, what the Republican Party or a new Republican Party or a new conservative party looks like after that remains to be seen. Are you considering a run for the presidency in 2024? I haven't I haven't ruled it out. I look at it though very much through the lens of stopping Donald Trump. And so whatever it will take to do that um, is very much my focus. I think the danger is that great that that needs to be everybody's top priority. Liz Cheney, her new book is called Oath and Honor: A Memoir and a Warning. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. So before we wrap up the show, we want to take a minute to say thank you so much to our new Book of the Day Plus supporters and anyone listening who donates to public media. The NPR network depends on your contributions. If you're not a supporter yet, right now is a great time to join our mission to create a more informed public. You can make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite station or stations, and you could subscribe to Book of the Day Plus and get sponsor-free listening to this show. Your donation today funds the news and podcasts that expand your horizons, connect you to exciting ideas and people, and inspire you every day. You know, we love bringing you the Books We Love collection every year, and we want to be able to keep doing that in the years to come. So please donate today at donate.npr.org books or explore NPR Plus at plus.npr.org. Thanks. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.